Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm John Schwartz, a writer at The Intercept, and I am substituting for Ryan Grimm this week because he's decided he doesn't care about this show or politics anymore. That's a joke. Obviously, Ryan cares a lot about Deconstructed and politics, and he will be back next week. But this week, we're going to be talking about my favorite subject in the world, what societies remember about the past, or what they think they remember, and why that may be the most important thing there is about politics. If you're like me, you grew up with a bunch of vague ideas about America's past in your head, and what this vague past meant about what was possible for America in the future. Here, 21st Bomber Command concentrated its massive air power and planned the ultimate crushing defeat of Japan, down to the last bomb. Here was the beginning of the end of the road to Tokyo. Big ideas like there was such a thing as American exceptionalism from the start of the United States, and one of those things was that America was super-duper powerful, yet not an empire somehow, and Reconstruction after the Civil War was a big failure, and there's never been such a thing as American socialism because it's just not part of our DNA, and a million other things that got into my head not because I studied and thought about them, but just because of some kind of weird osmosis. People like me truly need the new best-selling book, Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. It dismantles those specific weird squishy ideas that I had in my head, and many more, in 20 chapters by 20 different historians. It's edited by Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz, they're both professors at Princeton, and in their introduction, they say they put the book together because we live in an age of disinformation. The line between fact and fiction has become increasingly blurred, if not completely erased. And of course, they're right about this, but I would say we also live in a golden age of good information. Uh, people who listen to Deconstructed may well know Zelizer and Cruz already because they are a big deal on Twitter and are part of a whole group of the historians who've decided to kind of eject themselves from the cloistered academic tower and communicate with everybody about the freaky, complicated, gross, terrifying, thrilling, real history of America. There's a famous aphorism by the Czech writer Milan Kundera, which is, the struggle of human beings against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. That sounds a little highfalutin and pretentious, but it is also 100% true, and Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz are both definitely on the side of memory and regular people. So let's get started. Julian and Kevin, thank you very much for making the time to be here on Deconstructed. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. And so I would like to start uh, by talking about Lord of the Rings, uh, something which does not appear in your book even once. But I think the books and the movies of Lord of the Rings are maybe the greatest fictional depiction of why history matters, you know, even why librarians matter. You know, you're probably the kind of nerds who remember in the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf has begun to become suspicious about this ring that Bilbo the Hobbit has found, that it might be the great evil one ring of power. And he's noticed that every creature who's possessed it has started to call it precious. So he goes to Gondor to do some archival research, and the underpaid archivist there takes him to the memoir section of the library, where he finds the account of Isildur, the first person to possess the Ring of Power. And Gandalf is reading along, and he sees Isildur has written, I shall risk no hurt to the ring. It is precious to me. You know, which obviously demonstrates that this ring that Bilbo has is, in fact, the terrifying One Ring. It has come to me, the One Ring. It shall be an heirloom of my kingdom. All those who follow in my bloodline shall be bound to its fate, for I will risk no hurt to the ring. It is precious to me, though I buy it with a great pain. And I like to think that if Gandalf were a historian right then, surrounded by you know all this paper, he'd be thinking, like, well, I could get a great journal article out of this. <laughs> uh, like, this is going to look fantastic in my Guggenheim Fellowship application. I really do think like this is a heightened version of what knowing history can do for you. Like without knowing history, the world seems like just a, a random jumble of stuff happening all the time. And you'll always be confused about power and where it lies and how it works. 
uh, I think it also demonstrates history always kind of naturally decays and that remembering the past takes effort. And the most important things drop out of human memory without that effort, especially things that powerful people want forgotten. Like, you know, Sauron is against public schools in Middle Earth teaching kids how to identify rings of power. But if you do know history, you can see the patterns about how the world functions. And beyond that, you learn it's just a fascinating, thrilling saga. And the more you know about it, the more fascinating and thrilling it is. And so, you know, you have this made-up fairy tale. And in this made-up fairy tale, knowing history like truly is a matter of life and death. And those who forget history you know, are doomed to have repeated wars over the One Ring. But I think in a more complicated way, the same thing is true here. History actually is a matter of life and death in the world we live in. Uh, and that's my weird theory about this and, and why uh, what you guys do really does matter. And uh, so now you can tell me as professional historians if I am out of my mind. I, no, you're not. I mean, uh, obviously, we, we believe in that. That's what we do. Um, I think history matters in many ways. It, it matters uh, just broader intellectual level. I think we are better off if we understand where we come from, if we have some contextual sense of what's going on uh, today. And uh, the more we know about other people, the more we know about other cultures, just uh, the the better off we are collectively. Uh, but then, and, and this comes through in some of the essays of the book, history is used in very pointed ways on specific issues. And the way we understand the history sometimes plays into political decision-making. So you can take an issue like immigration, assumptions that we have about uh, what immigration is, how it works, what drives it, what the effects are historically, um, what it's looked like can directly impact decisions in Washington, D.C. or at the state level uh, on how the border is treated or how uh, people who are detained are treated. And public support could rise or fall in part based on these ideas of history that we have. So the stakes are incredibly high. And uh, when you're not talking about debates over issues, legitimate intellectual debates over how to interpret things, but you're just seeing partisan spin that's building support for policies, that's a whole other realm. And that's why uh, it's important historians push back with their knowledge. I would agree completely with that. And, and the only thing I would like to add is that that's the first time I've ever been compared to Gandalf. And I hope it's not the last. Yes. Well, we'll have you back uh, as a guest on this show specifically so we could extend this metaphor. Excellent. I encourage other people to use this this Gandalf analogy because I, I really do think it's true. And it, it makes me wonder, are there any other fiction? I hate to put you on the spot with this peculiar question, but are there any fictional depictions of historians that you think demonstrate like like the thrills and the significance of, of what you do? Huh, that's a good question. And that is putting me on the spot. And Kevin is, is I think he's walking his dog as, as the question comes up. Kevin, you have any historians who, in fictional depiction of history? Look, this is the problem. You know, archaeologists have Indiana Jones. Right. That's who comes to mind. You know, we're fighting Nazis, but we don't have that. We've got uh, who? The... Uh, uh, the Nicolas Cage character, uh, he's not really an historian. He deals with a lot of primary documents. I think it's high time we get a movie. I mean, maybe the we'll get the Julian Zelzer life story uh, will be the uh, will be the way we'll do it. We can we can fan cast it. The, the four hour biopic, right? Yeah. Well, you know, maybe Robert Caro could be our could be our superhero. You know, we'll, uh, that man is going to outlive us all. I think. Just to jump in there, there is a new there's a documentary out now about Robert Caro. Um, turn every page. It's about his relationship with uh, his editor. It's not fictional, obviously, but it's doing well. And it's really interesting, not just about the writing and editorial process, but how he approaches finding out the truth and the kind of strategies he uses with interviews and kind of rigorous archival research. So, so there's ways, I think, in which this actually can be interesting. Obviously, fictional uh, depiction is different. But I think at some level, I guess the bigger point is a lot of people are interested in the past. You hear it all the time. I mean, and not just in politics, in sports. I mean, talk to any baseball fan. They're obsessed with history. It's how we understand even uh, what's going on on the playing field. So uh, I do think there's a lot there that goes beyond just the classroom. Yeah, I, I will admit that from my childhood, I still have a section of my brain uh, devoted to the statistics of Honus Wagner. <laughs> so there's a book that I love. Uh, I know you guys must be familiar with it called Lies My Teacher Told Me uh, by the historian James Lowen, who died fairly recently. 
Uh, and in it, he talks about how American students hate history, that it's, it's always their least favorite subject. But obviously that wasn't true for you guys. Like, like what was it that caught you guys about history when you were kids? Well, I think for people for whom it's, it's their least favorite subject, it's because they're being taught it wrong. Uh, they're, they're, they're stressing kind of a precision of, of names and dates and not thinking about the connecting pieces between those. Uh, so for me, uh, I mean, people and dates are important, uh, but it was always about the stories. Uh, I really just from an early age was fascinated by these stories about the past. Um, uh, the civil rights movement in particular was something that was compelling for me at a young age. Um, and I, I kind of never let go of it. I find the past to just be in, in interesting in infinite ways. Uh, I, I'm, I'm constantly surprised by the things I find in the past. And, and on its own terms, I think it's um, just a wonderful place to get lost uh, in, a, in another time, another place. But at another level, uh, there's a deep connection to the present, as Julie noted. And I find that history is the key to unlocking so many things uh, at least I don't understand about the present. It's how I begin any project I, I, I start in is I don't understand this. I better dig into it and start to learn more about it. Uh, and, and so for, for me, that's been a process of, of, of discovery. Uh, and so rather than being forced to memorize dates, I think if we teach students that history is, you're going to be part detective digging out the, uh, the story from the past and part storyteller, repackaging it in a, in a way that, that lets you express yourself. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's two great roles combined together. For me, I'm trying to think back. It's unfortunately too long ago when I was a teenager, but it does help you make sense of things. The world is so chaotic and disjointed. One of the great things of what historians do or teachers of history do is that some level they try to connect the dots. You might not agree with how they're doing it, but it pushes you to start to make sense of how things fit together. So on an issue like civil rights, I remember reading Taylor Branch's work on that. And it had a big impact on me. I really liked it. It was very riveting. And it, it kind of wove together all these interrelated, but often seemingly disparate elements of uh, the struggle over race relations into a really compelling and coherent story. And I was impressed with that. I also liked the argument element of history meaning Kevin and I are believers in the importance of pushing back against things that are not true, but we are also very committed to good, robust arguments about how do you interpret uh, the research and the facts that you find. We do this with our students. Um, we do this professionally, and I grew up as a rabbi's son, so I literally grew up constantly hearing debates about everything. I mean, that is the Jewish tradition. And I think in some ways I found how history is practiced very compelling. You take a set of facts and then you have a really good debate about what do they mean and, and you try to connect it to other pieces of evidence. And, and finally, for me, it's how I make sense of politics. I was either going to be a journalist or a historian. I remember my senior year of college, I was trying to decide um, and, and in the end, I realized this is really how I enjoy interpreting what's happening in Washington, what's happening on Main Street, to root it in something, not to look at it as something that's totally novel and starting from day one uh, whenever you're thinking about it, but something that has real roots like a tree. Uh, and then it opens up, I think, your vision uh, and analysis in very important ways. So all of that for me was really how I ended up doing this stuff. That makes me wonder if you guys have noticed a, a shift in journalism in the last couple of years, because one of the most peculiar aspects of uh, the professionalized rules of journalism up until fairly recently was that it was essentially illegal to remember the past and to you know, point out to people that things that are happening now have often happened in similar ways you know, before. And that has changed, I think, to a significant degree. You know, not not in all the stories, not all the time. But have you guys noticed that there does seem to be more of a mention that you know things have happened before, right now, in modern day American journalism? Yeah, I think so, and I, I think it's it's come from a a new generation of journalists who not only appreciate history but really understand it. I mean, if you read the work of someone like Adam Sorwer or Jamil Bowie, um, they are deeply versed in the historical traditions uh, that they're writing about. And they bring them to bear on the present day. And so making comparisons between 
the antebellum period or reconstruction with modern day politics, the new deal, great society, they really do a great job of, of, of putting it in the proper context because they read actual historians. Um, uh, I think either of them could probably pass a general's exam uh, today if we sprang it on them. Uh, they're, they're pretty well versed. And I think they're increasingly becoming uh, more of a model. I don't think uh, not everyone's as, as I think deeply read as them, but the interest is certainly out there. And I'm not sure if this is a uh, something that has been facilitated by Twitter. I mean, it has been facilitated by Twitter, uh, in which journalists and scholars are on there and, and we're easy contact. I get you know DMs from, um, I, I just got off email with, with one from the New York Times, of uh, reporters who are looking for historians to help them explain X, Y, and Z. And so they're eagerly looking uh, for these voices out there. And I think Twitter has drawn those worlds closer together and made it a little easier to do. But I think uh, it's not just simply a technological uh, a thing. I think there really is a, a, an interest and awareness on the part of a new generation of journalists uh, that um, uh, uh, they need to put things in historical context. And it may be simply the, the, the kind of the uprooted feeling of the Trump era in which it seemed like everything was, was deeply unprecedented and they were questioning, well, was it? Was it not? Uh, and so that brought a lot of us uh, into the conversation. Yeah, I, I, I think it's true. I mean, I think... Some of it is technological. Uh, it's both social media also just gave room for more people to get out there. There's there's less centralization of how you can get your points. And that's important for historians who might not have that platform than they do. The fragmentation we see in other forms of media, there's just more places to publish. You know, there's lots of online journals now or magazines or newspapers lots of different radio or radio style outlets and even television. There's just a lot more content and there's just platforms. And I think historians have found their way there. And then that leads to interaction with reporters who hear bits and pieces of this and are curious. I also think, you know, objective journalism, meaning journalism that is really focused just on providing the facts, which had virtues. There were great reporters in earlier eras, but that's changed. And the younger generation, the early 2000s, uh, became critical of that. They wanted uh, journalism more with a point of view. They didn't kind of hide their own predispositions. And then it became a question, so what do you do? Like, how far do you go? And what does that mean for the practice of the reporter? Part of what I think has happened is you have reporters like the two Kevin mentioned and others who look also to more contextual, long-term ways to analyze things, to also provide something fresh than just this happened, this happened, and then this happened. And so I think a lot of things are at work, but I, I definitely believe there is a lot of interest in there from, from the media, at least to make this part of the story. Some do it a lot, like Jamel or Adam, but others, they put bits and pieces, and, and that's good too, uh, but there is an interest out there. I noticed, of course, that in the introduction to your book, you quote the famous part from 1984 about who controls the present controls the past, who controls the past controls the future. Lots of people know about that. I, I think fewer people remember that uh, talking about the past is, is also a big part of Brave New World, you know, the, the sort of dystopia about where people are controlled by pleasure instead of being controlled by pain. And there's the section, you guys are exactly, of course, the kind of weirdos who would remember this, where, you know, the controller, the guy who's in charge of everything is, is giving a lecture to some of the students. And, you know, you all remember, said the controller, you all remember, I suppose, that beautiful and inspired saying of R. Ford's, history is bunk. <laughs> and so all a sort of systems of authoritarianism intuitively understand that they need to tell a story, but it can't be the real story. Obviously, you guys are part of a fight against all kinds of people who do not seem to be very interested in the real story. And uh, what is your understanding of, of how they see history? Well, I mean, I think the, the right sees history as they want to remember the past, but a particular version of the past. And this isn't true of all people on the right, but, but they're the, the partisans on the right. There are conservative scholars who do a great job, but there, there are partisans on the right who have gotten involved in politics, uh, got involved in history uh, for purely political reasons. And what they want is they want a version of the past that props up a fantasy world, a version of the past in which only uh, the triumphs are discussed, none of the failures. Only the, the good traits are stressed, none of the weaknesses. Uh, it's one that's 
downplays conflict and presents a, a kind of past of, uh, of, uh, of a consensus uh, in which everyone was happy. I mean, that's the essence of make America great again, that things once were working well, they're not now, let's go back to that uh, misremembered past. A version of history that only celebrates the good without the bad, that's not history. That's propaganda. Uh, and it's not the job of an historian, of an historian of the United States to tell only the good parts of the United States any more than uh, a historian of France here in the United States would be expected to tell only the good parts about France or uh, the Middle East or the Soviet Union or whatever, right? We're supposed to provide the warts and all picture and, and give the give the full truth, uh, however uh, uncomfortable it might be. Uh, that's our job. Uh, and so what they're arguing for is not history. Uh, it's antithetical to history. Right. And Kevin is correct. There's conservatives, liberals, left, right. There's lots all over the place that are seriously interested in history and wrestle with it. But what we've seen in conservative circles is it's both this nationalistic particular version of history that wipes away conflict and uh, wipes away certain issues that they don't want to even discuss. But it's also weaponizing history itself. That's what's been pretty remarkable to watch in the last few years, where this becomes uh, like any other issue. Uh, reproductive rights or voting or foreign policy, we're seeing them use this as a way to uh, rally supporters, to send out, uh, you can call it propaganda, messaging, whatever you want, uh, based on things that just are not true. Uh, And uh, it's not subtle uh, interpretations of the past. As you see in a state like Florida, it's the argument that we are going to say, this entire field can't be studied. It's illegitimate. Uh, and using that for political advantage. And that's a troubling uh, trend. We argue you see that much more uh, in conservative circles than liberal circles. There is an asymmetry. It's clearly most pronounced in, in part because of the conservative kind of media ecosystem, which gives an unbelievable platform for uh, different persons to do this. But it is troubling. Uh, and I think it's extraordinarily damaging. And it's anti-historical. That's the one thing people should realize. This is not about defending history. It's about being anti-historical, opposed to the study of history. That's a more accurate way to characterize what's going on right now. Yeah. And, and something that I always find true about this kind of uh, nationalistic version of history in any country is that it's just inherently boring. And I think that is one of the reasons why kids hate the standard version of history. It it has no human beings in it. It's just, you know, the United States version. It's like, you know, almost 250 years now of interchangeable robots singing America the Beautiful. Like, kid, kids don't get into that because they don't recognize themselves. They don't recognize any humans in that. Whereas, like, the real history of what actually happened is something that I think kids, you know, would be fascinated by. I, I've always wanted to... Uh, you know, teach kids who learn about the, uh, you know, the two presidents and, and almost a third who died because of the like, giant pond of shit north of the White House in the mid-1800s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, back when I was in school, I think we were told Zachary Taylor died from a bad ice cream sundae or there was some weird story. This one is much more exciting. Yeah, I think that, that's the problem. That that version of the past in which you've got an idea of the 1950s that's kind of leave it to beaver, make America great again, that's boring, and, and and students don't want that because a, it's not a, an interesting story. Again, I said the stories of struggle are, are, are what drew me into history. And if you take those stories out, it just becomes bland and, and you know, it's it's a bunch of kind of cartoonish Boy Scouts. You've got, you know, the, the George Washington who chops down a cherry tree and uh, Honest Abe Lincoln and, and all these kind of squeaky clean role models, which is not relatable, right? Uh, I think what I find, and I've really found this in the last six, seven years, uh, it's always been true to some level, but it really it became pronounced here. Students have kind of embraced the study of the past by realizing, oh, things seem crappy now, but they've seemed really crappy, even worse than this in previous eras, right? You know, we had a literal civil war. We had, you know, I talk about 1919 is where, is where I start the, the, the lecture course I do, in which you've got 
the global pandemic of, of the Spanish flu, right? Uh, and there's, uh, there's all kinds of, of, of chaos and race riots and labor strikes and things going on. 1968, a chaotic year, right? Students really get into that. They, they like to, to understand, but this age that they're currently living in is not uniquely awful. It's not hopeless, right? We have been through bad times before in this country, and sometimes we've risen to a challenge, beautifully so, and, and sometimes we haven't. But dealing with those conflicts, dealing with those struggles, the exact kind of things that... Uh, these uh, these people want to sanitize and sterilize American history for their political purposes. Uh, that takes all the fun, all the interesting uh, fights out of the history, uh, the things that I think students would find the most relatable. Yeah, I mean, anyone who teaches uh, and teaches well learns this pretty quickly. Uh, students want uh, an engaged and interesting and complex classroom. That's what makes history pedagogy much better. Um, and that tends to draw students in. And again, this isn't a particular perspective. It's about the style of, of learning and college students for sure. I mean, uh, anyone who's had a teenager knows debate is part of what that age spends a lot of time doing with you, uh, with their friends, with others. And uh, thinking critically is the skill that you know makes the classroom most interesting. And students are not uh, unintelligent. They understand if you're just teaching them something that isn't true. That's why they get bored. It's like, come on, uh, you know, to borrow the president's phrase, come on, man. And I think that just doesn't work very well. And so in both respects, when this kind of shift takes place, it also undermines, I'm sure, uh, interesting work. It doesn't even make sense in the world they all live in. I mean, it doesn't even matter where you live. You can live in the reddest part of the country, the bluest part, you know life isn't neat. It's not all good. You see it in your family. You see it in your friends and in your community. So if you teach a history that has none of the problems you see all around you all the time, um, you know, that, that BS flag is going to go up very quickly for a lot of younger people. So it's important to take them seriously and respect them by actually teaching a complex understanding and version of this country's past. Uh, yeah, speaking of George Washington not being able to tell a lie, I've always remembered uh, the first time, and it was fairly recently, that I heard the story of, I think, Oni Judge yeah. uh, was a woman that Martha Washington owned, and George Washington and Martha Washington wanted to make sure that, that she wasn't automatically freed, I believe, by spending time in a free state in Pennsylvania when he was president. And, uh, you know, there are letters from George Washington, like, telling his you know, various people who did stuff for him, like, okay, I want to lie about this. Here's how we're going to lie. And like that to me was a million times more interesting than hearing about some imaginary version of George Washington, who was a little boy who said he could never tell a lie. And I really wanted to learn more about George Washington and like, like all of that story and who he was from that. And uh, I wonder if there are any particular examples in your life where you're like, wow, I had no idea that that was true. And I've got to find out more. Every class I took in college on foreign policy was like that for me. Really, you know, eye-opening uh, in terms of the, uh, dis the disconnect between what you heard about why we entered into certain wars or what the interests were of policymakers, and then really learning uh, what was going on and what policymakers were actually thinking of or what they did to achieve uh, victory. So, someone just has to study foreign policy in the Nixon years and uh, look at a figure like Henry Kissinger. And I think it's incredibly powerful to really understand uh, where an administration would go to achieve the principles they were talking about, but doing things you really didn't hear about in the public. So for me, a lot of those classes that were either about that or touched on that or just reading about it alerted me or made me more cognizant of the need to probe a lot you know, deeper into what was actually happening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. With Mint Mobile, you get great wireless service at a fraction of the cost of other providers. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. That's mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I remember the fact that in the first presidential election that I was aware of was Reagan and Carter in 1980. And of course, uh, in the fall, there were constant rumors that the hostages being held by Iran were going to be released. And this was a big deal, obviously, for America, but it was also a big, big deal for me because I was on a a peewee football team uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., and our coach worked for the Pentagon. And... One of his jobs involved like, well, you know, if if these hostages are released and flown to Germany, then he's going to be one of the people debriefing them. Mm. And so whenever we heard the rumors like the hostages may be released, that meant that we were going to need a substitute football coach. And my father volunteered to do that. So I was paying attention to all this throughout that. Like, like I would watch what became Nightline. I don't think it was called Nightline then, but people may know that no, it, comes out, it comes out of that crisis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like America held hostage and then they just kept on doing it yeah. after they were released. But anyway, the reason I tell this story is that I absolutely learned nothing about U.S. foreign policy towards Iran during that period because it was never, ever mentioned. And when I got older, like, I think I was in my 20s when I found out the U.S., you know, overthrowing the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953. And it just made me feel like, hey, wait a second. Like, somebody, shouldn't somebody have mentioned this to me? Look, I had that not in college, even after college. And when I was already a historian writing about Lyndon Johnson, I always remember hearing the, when they released a batch of tapes. This is a great way to learn something new, no matter what you have learned. And there's a great tape that came out, it's a while now, but it's between Richard Russell, who was the senator from Georgia. He was the mentor, really, for Johnson. And he was the key power broker in the Senate of the Dixiecrats. And Johnson and he are having a conversation in 64, I believe, about Vietnam. And and Russell's a real conservative. You know, he's not uh, someone you'd think would be critical at all. And it's a mind-blowing conversation because he's basically laying out the arguments to Lyndon Johnson about what's going to go wrong and why this is not even a war that's essential to the Cold War. Uh, And Johnson's talking about knowing this and not knowing how he's going to get out and worried they're going to impeach him if he does. Basically, the politics too strong. But you hear these two people in, in early in the conflict, before it's really started, who are fully aware of all the problems that later on in a few years will be front and center. And for me, and I had studied this, I had written about it, it was just eye-opening to see how early these doubts existed and were being discussed behind the scenes all the time. There's a great book that came out of those tapes by Fred Logovall, Choosing War, which emphasizing the contingency of that moment. And it's all premised on these kinds of tapes where we learned how much doubt existed before the disaster and before the quagmire really happened 
there was that moment when they were all talking about it. So that's just another recent example where a piece of evidence, real evidence, real archival material kind of has the potential to transform how you think about it. You can't think about this idea of a domino theory where everyone agreed they had to do this. Uh, and if they didn't do it, the whole region was going to fall to communism. And then you hear these two Cold War hawks saying, not really. Uh, and I'm not sure this is a great idea. It changes the way you uh, think. And, and those are exciting moments, um, disturbing moments for sure, uh, but also exciting because they open up the questions you're going to ask about material you're often familiar with. Yeah, and I would, I would encourage anybody young listening to this who is uh, not yet super devoted to history to understand from, from that story that history is something that really absolutely gets better as you get older. Like, you've lived more history, you've seen more history. The more you know about history, the more context you have for everything, the more interesting everything else becomes. So uh, if you're not completely devoted yet, as I say, like, just like keep on trucking and you will get there. Uh, and so I've been asking you guys a lot of sort of like meta history questions. I wanted to give you a chance, if you could, to just talk a little bit about the two chapters, you know, each of you wrote one for Myth America. Kevin's chapter, you know, covers an earlier period uh, about the Southern strategy. Yeah. And it's full of, go get this book and read this chapter if you ever want to discuss the subject with, with anyone. The amount of information in this one short chapter is extraordinary. But anyway, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Thank you. Yeah, I wrote this chapter. In fact, the, the, my, one of our impetus for this book came out of things that we were doing on Twitter and online and, and, and Julian on, on CNN and in his column, pushing back on historical mistruths. And one of the ones, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, that I've been pushing it back on for ages is this idea that the Southern strategy is somehow a myth. And for those of you who don't know, the Southern strategy is basically a shorthand term for uh, Republicans in the 1960s decide that they can no longer maintain their kind of past commitment to civil rights as the party of Lincoln. And in order to have national success, they need to reach out to Southern conservatives and effectively make peace with segregationists and recruit them into the party. This is a story that has long been, I mean, just as conventional as they get. It was written about at the time, uh, in real time. Reporters were talking about it. Nixon's strategists were explaining this in newspaper columns. In 1970, Kevin Phillips talks about how the Republican Party is going to win over negrophobe whites who are fleeing the Democratic Party because of their commitment to civil rights. It's all over the place. It's in their archives. You can find this in everything from Nixon's memoirs to the memoirs of Harry Dent, who was the, uh, the kind of the chief Southern strategist, to Papers of Goldwater, on and on. The Republican Party had long accepted this. Lee Atwater talks about the Southern strategy being racist in the 1980s. During the Bush era, chairman of the Republican National Committee, um, uh, Michael Steele and uh, Ken Melman, both apologized for the Southern strategy. So this has long been an accepted fact. But during the Trump era, there was a change in Republican politics. And while in the Bush era, apparently the idea had been to, to apologize for this past mistake and to say, look, we're different from that now. We are now a uh, a, a multiracial party. You can look at the Bush administration. It's got a commitment to racial diversity, making moves on immigration reform. This is not the old Southern strategy party. Well, the problem is that the Trump administration came to power and embraced a lot of those old racist policies that the, the Bush people had tried to, to veer away from. And so instead of apologizing for that past, they saw there was nothing to apologize for, they decided to pretend it never happened. Uh, and so there was a new wave of partisans, people like Dinesh D'Souza, Carol Swain, uh, other people like that, who have um, spread this idea far and wide on the internet uh, and in conservative social media that this is simply a fiction made up by academics, uh, you know, like a dozen years ago or so. And again, it's all in broad daylight. Uh, and as I note in the book, and as you said, uh, um, uh, there's lots of evidence there. And I do hope Anyone who's interested in um, discussing the Southern strategy with someone who doubts it will draw on this as a resource because that's why I wrote it. Uh, and all the time I did those, those threads, I kept on thinking, I wish there was a short, pithy piece that I could point people to. All I could do with these kind of, you know, 600, 700 page uh, tomes of political science or works that talked about it tangentially. And it was just, there was nothing directly on it uh, that was short and sweet. And so that's why I wrote this piece to try to, uh, try to fill that need. 
one of the sentences in the beginning of your chapter is one of the greatest frustrated historian sentences ever written, where you say, like, this is well-documented in manuscript archives, public speeches, party platforms, contemporary reporting, polling data, oral interviews, memoirs, and elsewhere. It's all over the... I mean, again, this, and this is not, again... I think people maybe have an, have an eye that, you know, left-wing historians are rubbing their hands together trying to distort the past. This is literally, you know, Bill Dickinson out of Alabama, when he switches from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, says in his announcement, I am joining the white man's party. <laughs> he wins election on that campaign. 1964, the first Mississippi Republican to win a House seat. Where does he celebrate the win? At a Klan front group, the next day he goes to meet, uh, what's it called, uh, Americans for the Advancement of the White Race or something like that. Again, they're not hiding this. And it's not that Southern Democrats were all racial liberals. They weren't. But this evidence of the Southern Republicans uh, really um, uh, being segregationist is out front. The Mississippi Re Republican Party, to give one more, just one more point, Mississippi Republican Re Party in 1964, its party platform uh, declares its support for segregation. So it's necessary, you know, to, in order to maintain white supremacy, essentially. So this is, again, hiding in plain uh, daylight. What I did uncover, I'll, I'll give myself a little credit for this, is that it goes back a, a lot further than the 60s. We often talk about this as happening with Goldwater. What I found is, is from the Dixiecrat Rebellion in 1948, from the moment that happens, the moment Southern Democrats uh, start to balk at the new directions Harry Truman's taking the party with the support of civil rights, uh, Republicans realize uh, those Southern Democrats are for grabs, and they're down there trying to recruit them. Carl Munt um, goes on a, a nationwide tour, spends a lot of time in the South in 49 and 50, arguing for a merger of the Dixiecrats and the Republicans. The chairman of the RNC is down in Alabama in 1952 saying, Dixiecrats believe in states' rights, Republicans believe in states' rights, let's get together and form a union. It doesn't happen right away. It doesn't even happen completely in the 60s. It's a process that unfolds over decades into the uh, the early 21st century. But it's a really important transformation. And again, it's incredibly obvious. And I should stress that while a lot of these essays aren't saying anything new to historians, uh, we're uh, really recapping uh, the things that we know well. We're trying to correct uh, mistaken assumptions and, uh, and, and misbeliefs uh, held by the general public. Yeah, one of my very favorite parts of the chapter is, is Trent Lott, who people may know, you know, went on to become the Republican majority leader in the Senate, telling the uh, Sons of Confederate Veterans that yeah. the spirit of Jefferson Davis lives in the 1984 Republican platform. I was like, well, that's very straightforward. <laughs> you, you can't fault him for being dishonest here. Lott's own career is, is a great example of this transformation. Lott had been the top aide to a long-serving segregationist Southern Democrat, William Colmer. And when Colmer retired, he tapped Lott to be his replacement, but said, run as a Republican. And Lott did. And that's the transformation that takes place all across the South. This old generation dies out, new generation comes up, becomes up as Republicans. And so that, that chapter is an amazing resource, resource on this subject. Uh, and Julian, your chapter about the Reagan revolution is also a fantastic uh, resource for that subject because – you know, as as you know, in a lot of the popular imagination, what really happened during the Reagan administration has has been totally reconstructed. I mean, uh, this is a powerful, I think, myth. Uh, certainly, it's become important to the conservative movement, a founding myth in many ways of a president who just transformed the nation uh, almost completely toward the right, who was very successful and set the template uh, for where we are today. It's also uh, as I've said, it's a myth that a lot of, I think, liberals also uh, subscribe to. And, and I wanted to really emphasize two elements of the period that I think are central and, and either forgotten or ignored. Uh, not that Reagan was not influential, not that conservatism didn't have a big impact, but liberalism remained incredibly strong in 1980s America. You can look at almost any area of politics and policy, whether it's domestic welfare programs, whether it's... Uh, resistance toward excessive, uh, you know, interventions overseas. And there was a lot of strong support for all of this. I mean, to the point Reagan backed away from many of the things that he actually ran on in, in 1981. So it's not really a revolution when there's so many checks by the end of his term on what he's able to achieve. And secondly, the notion this was, you know, a consensus uh, that everyone was in on as the ad said, morning in America again in 1984, it's just not true. He was incredibly divisive as a president. 
and you know Democrats from uh, Speaker Tip O'Neill in the House of Representatives to uh, many uh, voters in suburban parts of the country to organizations fighting against you know U.S. policy in Central America or the nuclear freeze movement, one of the largest international grassroots movements we've had ever. It's just a very different portrait once you put all of this into that understanding of the 1980s. And so uh, that's why I wanted to really hone in on that particular myth. And it's important not just to understand Reagan or the 80s uh, in a better way. And I think you actually understand Reagan in a more interesting way. It's not discounting him. It's really taking him seriously. But you see that the trajectory of politics that leads to today makes a lot more sense, where you still see a lot of support for ideas that are more rooted in the New Deal and the great society than in Reaganism, uh, which is perpetually a source of frustration to conservatives. Um, but it doesn't really make sense if that was a revolution. And so that's why I put it together. And like Kevin, I wanted to write it in a way that was interesting and intellectually rich, but short, to the point, uh, easy to access, and putting together a lot of literature that's come out in the last decade or so on this subject. And I will admit, like, I was genuinely surprised by your quotation from Tip O'Neill's memoirs, where I, I had, like, bought into the public presentation of like, oh, sure, you know, they fight during the day, but they get along great, you know, after hours, and they're all buddies in Washington. And, and you quote Tip O'Neill saying, like, I've known every president since Harry Truman, and there's no question in my mind that Reagan was the worst. And that wasn't simply a normative statement about Reagan's style. That was a fundamental sense of frustration with what Reagan was doing, what Reaganism was about. And O'Neill and many other Democrats were determined to stand their ground because the stakes were so high. Um, you know, there are ways in which Reagan was as divisive and contentious, I would argue, as Donald Trump. And many people feared where this country was going to go, and, and they, they fight back. Um, that's why Reagan has so much trouble achieving many of his ends. But that Tip O'Neill quote, that is kind of the embodiment of how people now talk about this presidency, which is just unbelievable, I think, uh, certainly for me as a student of the period, but also someone, a Gen Xer who lived through the period. I remember a lot of people who are not so swept up and uh, not only friends, but just reading about it at the time. And so uh, I think that is a good, accurate story to focus in on and, and part of what I wanted to explode. And again, the point, and this is, gets back to earlier in our conversation, is not to diminish Reagan as president. It's not to discredit Reagan as president. I actually take him seriously. And so I'm not going to present him, given all I've learned, as this guy who just walked through and erased uh, decades of public policy and politics that had really you know, had a big impact on the country since FDR, but rather a president who struggled uh, to achieve a lot of the goals that were central to the movement that brought him into power and learned this country was not exactly where he hoped it would be going and that it wasn't a revolution. Uh, it was a civil war. It was a, a kind of fraught decade uh, that's never been resolved since um, because older ideas and older interests did not go away. Yeah, it really uh, particularly is striking the similarities between Reagan and Trump in, uh, in so many ways. Like I, I've come to believe, you know, so Reagan was the prototype and Trump was the final product. They had a lot of things that they said they were going to do. And the difference that they made, uh, I think much more was sort of in the tone of the country and, and just like the level of meanness and, <laughs> and just overall vibe than actual like political standard, political achievements. So the main question that I have now uh, at the end of this for you guys is, uh, like, I read this book and I thought there need to be, like, ten more versions of this. <laughs> you know, there are enough American myths that there need to be uh, a bunch of sequels. And so this has been a big success. It's been a New York Times bestseller. Is that plausible in the future? Are there going to be more Myths America? We haven't talked about it. I mean, we agree that there are many more that could be done. Uh, the, the 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 twenty one the twenty myths we've got in this book are by no means exhaustive. Uh, there are some big ones still on the table that would make for a great second volume. The question of pulling it off again uh, is 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 difficult. I've I've been kicking this current book project I'm working on down the the, the road way too long. 
Julian can multitask uh, with the best of them. I think he's probably currently writing six books that will be out this fall. Uh, I cannot do that. Uh, I, I, I cannot multitask. Um, so, so for the, the time being, I've, I've got to focus my attention on this, on this new project. That said, we might come back to this later on. In the meantime, if other people want to pick up the ball and run with it, um, jump in. The water's fine. I mean, right now we are um, we're doing different things. Who knows? We can come back to it. Um, we had written something years a few years ago together, and so that's always a possibility. But and we'll, and we'll just see. But I think more importantly, I mean, the point of the book wasn't to capture everything. It's not an encyclopedia of myths. Uh, it's more um, uh, an approach to doing this that I hope is actually portable meaning that other scholars can find ways to do this as well. I hope their reception, which was so good, is encouraging, um, that there actually is an appetite out there to do this, and hopefully that will create an incentive, whether it's someone writing one book or someone doing what we did. You know, that ultimately is the best kind of accomplishment, not just we produce more and more, uh, but we encourage others to think about maybe better ways to do it and, and their own take, which is fine with us. But it's a conversation that we started rather than some effort to definitively tell everything. And, and very important in this book is our effort um, to just showcase great scholars in uh, the history profession uh, who are not always the people you might see or hear uh, in in the media, but are very good writers who really have something to say about the issues that are going on today and and maybe to push back a little bit on some of the hostility or tension a lot of people have with the university, um, which I think both of us think still does great things and our authors are all part of that. And so I hope this also just, you know, fuels more interest in actually learning and broadening how many historians or how many kinds of scholars that you go to um, when you want information about what's going on or what has gone on in the past. Well, as I say, I hope there are more versions of this book uh, there are so many more myths that really do deserve to be treated like this. In the meantime, everyone should go get Myth America. It, like, if you have any interest in American history, if you have any interest in American politics, this is really the book for you. Get it for your bright 15-year-old nephew, your bright 15-year-old niece. Uh, it's, it's a great book for teenagers to learn like, and, and they will be outraged by everything that they've been lied to about. And, <laughs> you know, this, this is a great entryway to more and more and more history, but thank you guys very much for your time. And uh, I hope we can have you guys uh, back here at some point to talk more history. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. It was a pleasure. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Oliveras. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm John Schwartz, a senior writer at The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you very much. Uh, Ryan will be back next week, still in love with politics, no matter what I said at the start of this episode. We will see you then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.